بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما لسيدنا الشريف اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد This is session number 69 in our series Islam's Greatest Personalities on part 18 of the seerah of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in the last session, we spoke about how Salah was established and we discussed this in detail and we concluded that Salah was one of the first things taught to the Prophet after receiving the revelation and then Qiyamul Layl was obligatory upon the Prophet and the Sahaba for some time and thereafter there were two Salah in a day until the incident of Mi'raj, where five times Salah became obligatory, and it was after the Hijrah that the two rakat became four rakat. So, Dhuhr, Asr, and Isha, even after Mi'raj, was two two rakat. After migrating to Medina Munawwara, Dhuhr, Asr, and Isha became four rakat. This is where what we discussed and we concluded on. Today, inshallah, we're going to be discussing the first people to accept Islam. Who were the first people? And why it's important to know who they were. Before we go into that, we're going to speak about how the message started to spread. Now, the Prophet ﷺ has received the revelation. He's become the Nabi, he's become the Rasul. We've spoken about how he's gone home and he spoke to Khadija. She took him to Waraqa bin Nawfal. And then we've spoken about how they would perform salah quietly, secretly. But then, in regards to now spreading this message, how did that happen? We're going to continue now. So first of all, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala informed Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam of his noble rank and his position through wahi. Allah told him who he is, what his duty and his responsibility is. And because he was so grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a means of showing gratitude to Allah, he was performing salah and expressing his appreciation to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for this. Now the initial task of, we call it tabligh. Tabligh means to spread the message, uh, to spread, to pass on. You know something, to pass it on to somebody else. This is tabligh. So the initial task of tabligh, what was there to pass on? There weren't any rules. What would, if you invited somebody to Islam, what would you be telling them to do? What, what would, because what, it's, just, it's only just started. So initially, the task of inviting people was more to invite them to ponder and reflect. To ponder and reflect and to think. Look at the realities of this world and understand and conclude. Look at the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and come to a conclusion that there is a creator behind them. To believe in him alone and not to believe in anyone else besides him. So at this time it wasn't a, a moment to kind of thrust uh, injunctions and rules and actions upon people. It was just a matter of them changing their thinking 
and their belief and believing in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, engaging the minds of the people, using insight, reflection, calling them to ponder, uh, to understand the message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the Quran invites us to do this again and again. Quran invites us, says in the creation of the heavens and the earth and the changing of the day and the night, there are signs for people of understanding. Those who remember Allah standing, sitting and reclining. And they ponder, they reflect, and they think about all of this. And they come to this conclusion that Allah has not created all of this in vain, without any reason, without any purpose. There's a huge objective behind it all. Um, so this is how we initially started. And wisdom, this is important. Wisdom plays a significant role in tabliq. Wisdom, hikmah. We call it hikmah in Arabic. In our other languages, we say hikmat as well. And in English, we say wisdom. Wisdom plays a significant role in tabligh. And when we say tabligh, right, we're not just speaking about... So you've got different ways of tabligh nowadays. One is tabligh has become famous with the work of jamaat and tabligh. So that's also tabligh. Tabligh is what Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa was doing, is going to non-Muslims and inviting them to the deen. That is tabligh. And this is what we're doing now is tabligh. When you're speaking to your children about performing salah, that's also tabligh. Okay, when you're discussing with friends about the deen, that's also a level of tabligh. On social media, you're posting a clip, for example, that's also tabligh. All of this is tabligh. Okay, tabligh in all forms, meaning to spread the message of Allah, regardless which form it's done in. One thing we learn, a very important component of tabligh is hikmah, wisdom. Allah says in the Quran, when you invite somebody to the call, call of Allah, regardless whoever it is and whatever method it's in, two things Quran says you must use. One is hikmat, wisdom. And you have to use a good method, not just randomly. Some people say, don't prepare anything. Whatever comes to your mind, just say it. Okay? Whatever comes to your head, just say it. This is what people say. Don't, don't prepare. Are you, this is not, you would never ever say this. You would never ever say this in any other field. That just go there, stand up and whatever comes to your mind, just say it. Okay, you'll get, you'll get, you know, this is the deen of Allah. This is Quran. This is Sunnah. This is, this, you have to be so careful and so pretty. And this is why a lot of times we're finding people just say anything. So I, sometimes they don't, okay, sometimes people are saying the right thing. Okay, using the right way, but then there's no wisdom. So it's not, there's no tact there. So both of these things are, hasana and al-hikmah. Both of these things are necessary when delivering any type of message. It has to be done in this way. So why do I mention this? So we learn this over here. Look, in the beginning, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So we're going to look at the stages very briefly. What were the stages of da'wah? The stages of Tabligh. He's just become a messenger, right? What were the stages that he went through uh, according to the circumstances? Ibn al Qayyim rahmatullahi in his book Zad al Ma'ad, he mentions five stages of da'wah. Five stages of da'wah in terms of the addressees. Not the person addressing, but those who are being addressed. 
five stages of the da'wah in terms of the addressees. Number one. So he mentions the first one was prophethood itself. So he received prophethood. So just letting people know about the fact that he received prophethood. He spoke to very close people, just his wife really. And then she took him to Waraqah bin Nawfal. So that was the beginning. The second stage was da'wah to the close family members. Okay, just the close family members. Number three was the da'wah to the people of his tribe. His tribe. And then da'wah to all of the Arabs to whom no Nabi had come to. So this was specifically to the Arabs. And number five was da'wah to the whole of mankind, humankind and jinn kind until the day of Qiyamah. So Ibn al-Qayyim has mentioned these five stages of da'wah in terms of those who are addressed. Now, you get seerah. I've spoke about this in, in the beginning. You get something called the seerah, which we all know we're going through now. And then you get something called fiqh seerah. You know, you have fiqh. Everybody's heard of the word fiqh. Okay. You know, how, you know what fiqh means? Yes? No? Fiqh. Fiqh. Generally, when we say fiqh means, the word actual fiqh means understanding. A deep understanding. And it's commonly used for the rulings that we have in Islam of halal and haram, permissible, not permissible, something that's categorized. So, for example, we'll have the fiqh of wudu, the fiqh of salah, okay, the fiqh of nikah, okay, the fiqh of buying and selling. Each thing has a fiqh and it's the technical rulings what's allowed, what's not allowed, what this so and so imam say. That's why we have the four imams of fiqh. These four imams, they are generally four imams of generally it's fiqh, meaning the understandings of the rulings they derive from the Quran and the Sunnah and the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. It's this is the fiqh. So there's something called fiqh seerah. So you get scholars who put together the seerah. Then you have scholars who looked at the seerah and the derived fiqh from the seerah, meaning the derived lessons conclusions from the seerah. So this is also important. It's another whole aspect. Uh, so you've got the life of the Prophet Sallallahu and then you've got scholars who've studied that really well and they've taken out extracted lessons from there. Like the ulama extracted rulings from the Quran and the Hadith and the lives of the Sahaba. This is extracting lessons. This is we call this fiqh seerah. There are certain ulama who've written books on this. For example, a great Syrian scholar who passed away maybe in the early 2000s, Sheikh uh, Muhammad Saeed Ramadan Al Buti. I don't, I don't think anyone's heard his name before, but he was a very great scholar of re very recent times. So he has a famous book called Fiqh Sirah, and so in this he mentions the incidents of the Sirah, and then he derives lessons. Look, from this we can earn, we can learn this, we can learn this, we can apply this in our days. This is what we can learn from him. This is how we can apply this. This is how we can take this from him. So it's not just left as a story where you just listen in one ear out of the other ear. No, we're listening to this so that we can apply and learn how to implement that now. So he writes uh, four stages of the Dawah. Four stages of the Dawah. Number one, he says the first stage was the secret call. Secret call. Secret call. That's the first beginning. Meaning, and this lasted for three years. For the first three years, the Prophet ﷺ was calling people to Islam, to the deen of Allah, secretly, not openly, no announcements, no going in public, very secretly, quietly. 
disguised, undercover. This lasted for three years. The stage two, we call the open court, but without fighting. So openly, they were inviting people to Islam, the Prophet and the Sahaba, they were going out, they're calling people openly. Now it's no longer than in secret. However, they would not fight. Anybody who opposed them, anybody who hurt them, there was no jihad. They would not fight back. They would not even defend. They would basically, if they got troubled, persecuted, they would take the trouble. They didn't go and attack and fight people. Uh, and this lasted all the way till Hijrah, until migration. So the whole time in Mecca, the first three years was secret call. And then, how many years? For 10 years then, because 13 years they're in Mecca on them. So three years secret call, 10 years they're in Mecca, there's open call to Islam. However, Muslims did not fight back. They did not fight back. Stage three was now open call again. The call is open and now they will fight those who fight them. So those who fought them, attacked them, they would attack back as well. And this continued until Hudaybiyyah. Hudaybiyyah happens in which year? Sulhul Hudaybiyyah. Which year of, uh, after Hijrah? Eighth year. After Hijrah? So eight years after going to Medina Munawwara, for eight years, they're calling openly. Anybody who fought them, the Muslims say, we're going to defend now. We're not going to just sit back now. Because now, Muslims were in a different... I mean, Mecca was very different. They were being persecuted. They were very few in number. When they came to Medina Munawwara, things changed. Things changed. They had their own masjid. They had their own area. They had their own rule. And now people who attacked them, they said, well, we're going to defend ourselves. And you see the different campaigns. And the fourth stage was, again, the open call continued. And then it was anybody who becomes an obstacle in our path, we'll fight them as well. If somebody doesn't disturb us, we don't disturb them. We've got nothing. You carry on. You want to practice your religion, we'll practice our religion. But wherever we are going, if anybody's becoming an obstacle, stopping us, for example, if, for example, there is a fire over there, okay, the fire brigade is going, and you've got the emergency services, and you're driving to that location to put that fire out, and a group of people stand in the way and they stop you. They say, no, we're not going to let you go. You can't go past here. And you're going to talk to them nicely. Look, we're trying to save some lives over there. We need to go there. We need to save the lives. You know, we're not going to let you go. We're going to stop you from going. And you'll tell them again nicely. Look, we're telling you very nicely. Move out of the way. Either you join us in helping them or just move out of the way. Let us go and help them. If they're going to stand in the way, what are you going to do now? Okay, now we have to use force. Because because of these few people, this fire is going to spread everywhere. It's going to carry on spreading and spreading and spreading just because of a handful of people. It's like you get cancer. If somebody, Allah, protect us all, grant us afiyah. If you get an illness like this in one part of the body and it becomes so severe, what do you need to do? Okay, if you can't remove it, okay, that limb has to be cut off. Because if you don't, then the entire body is going to become infected. So similarly, the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has this system. Some people becoming an obstacle. We don't want to remove them. We'll invite them. We'll call them very nicely. We'll explain to them. But if they're just not letting us put the fire out and help those people, give them the services that they need, and these people will have to be moved out of the way. So again, we're not going looking for people. These people became an obstacle in our path in doing what we wanted to do. They will have to be removed so that we can save the lives of those people. And this continued till the end. So they weren't going around looking for trouble. 
it's initially, generally, it was mostly defense. They were being attacked, so then they attacked back or they defended themselves. Yes, there were some occasions, but again, in those occasions, if you look very carefully, you could justify it and it's very easily, easily you can understand. For example, what happened at Badr? Badr wasn't supposed to be a war. It wasn't supposed to be a battle. Abu Sufyan had taken a lot of wealth from the people of Makkah that they had invested and he was going on a trade caravan. Now what happened in Makkah for so many years, for so many years, Muslims were being persecuted. Now when they had to migrate, right, the likes of Abdurrahman ibn Auf, who was like a millionaire, he had to leave every single penny behind, right? All of the Sahaba, Abu Bakr was very wealthy, Omar was very wealthy, Uthman ibn Affan was a billionaire, okay? All of their money, all of their trade, all of their business, they had to leave behind. Now these kuffar of Makkah, they're using all of this wealth now, they've taken over it, okay? And they're going and investing it. The Prophet says, Sahaba, what do you think? There's a trade caravan there going, why don't we intercept it? Okay? They've given us a hard time and we've not said anything to them. They've martyred people and they gave us such a difficult time. What do you think? Sahaba said, yeah, okay, that's fine. They didn't carry any weapons. Their intention wasn't to fight. But when the Quraysh, they found out that the Muslims are coming in this manner, they sent reinforcement. They sent armor. They sent soldiers. And they became a thousand in number. And the Prophet ﷺ said to the Sahaba, look, I didn't say that we're going for a battle, but it's become a battle. So I'm going to ask you again, are you guys up for this? Because that's not what we came out for. Can, can you see, no one's going to turn around and say, oh, Muslims initiated this. They were in their right to do so because they'd been persecuted for so many years. Imagine they, did attack, well, they didn't manage to catch the caravan. Even if they did catch the caravan, what were they going to get out of it? Okay, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, four thousand. That's never going to equal the losses that they made in those 13 years and everything they left behind, including their houses. Okay. Wealth and businesses is separate. Their houses, they have to leave behind their homes, right? Their family homes. You can't put a price to that. So this is how it started off. And I've just given you the different stages. And this is going to carry on until the end of time. So what we're learning, our purpose in this life is twofold. One is to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which we call ibadat. Ibadah is the worship of Allah. And the, 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 the other responsibility that we have is the responsibility of da'wah. Da'wah is everyone's responsibility, every Muslim. You said la ilaha illallah, you're responsible for two things. One is practicing Islam yourself and then passing Islam on to other people. When we say other people, meaning everyone in the whole world, not just Muslims, non-Muslims as well. This is our responsibility. According to our capacity, capability, we should be doing this. Um, it doesn't mean you go out and start giving lectures and speeches, okay, or you stand on the street corner and stand up, you know, stand up with a stall. Everyone according to their capacity should recognize and realize that this is what I'm here for in this world. This is, this is why I have been created for two things. One is to worship Allah and number two to get other people to worship Allah. It's quite simple as a concept, but sadly most of the Muslims don't see themselves in this light. We understand the first part that I'm here to worship Allah, right? So I know about my namaz, I know how to do my roza, I know how to do my hajj, I know how to give my zakat, I know how to make sure I eat halal, okay? I know I have to follow the sunnah. But this second responsibility, it's kind of like almost absent in most of our minds. 
Whereas this is also something that we are responsible for. And you'll see an example of it in the seerah. Now, a question arises here. Why was the call in the beginning done secretly? Why was it that for three years, the invitation and the call was done secretly? We know that the Prophet ﷺ, he preached secretly for the first three years. The reason wasn't because he was scared. This is something we have to understand. It wasn't because he was scared thinking, oh, if I go out in public, you know, I might get attacked and persecuted and people are going to kill me or something like this. He wasn't scared for his life. Rather, this was Allah's command. This is how Allah wanted it to be. Because if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when Allah revealed upon him, Ya ayyuhal muddathir kum fa'andir, he was already convinced that no matter where I go now, Allah's support and help and aid is going to be with me. He had that conviction. Whether he goes public, whether he goes private. He was told and he knew, he was convinced that Allah is with me. So he's not scared. He's not frightened. He's got responsibility. He's going to do it. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the beginning instructed him to go and preach openly, he would have done it openly. But we understand the ulama say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted him to work secretly in the beginning. And so many lessons we learn from this. You know, we speak about wisdom and hikmah. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted him initially to only present Islam to those people who will most likely accept the message. Those people who you say are like-minded. Those people who are close to him, who he, had, he was kind of convinced that, you know what, this guy's going to listen to me. He's going to accept my message or she's going to probably listen to the message. And this is what happened. He didn't go out to everybody. And this is, this is teaching us many lessons as well of how you begin, how you start. You just don't start going to everybody in the beginning because no one's going to, uh, you, you'll get rejected and then you'll feel, you'll feel, you know, depressed and you think, oh, this is not, not working. First, to create a small group, a small group of people. So you have some kind of support who can give you moral support as well. And this we see the Prophet ﷺ did. And there's an important message and lesson to use the available means and the strategies. So this is, this is using a means, isn't it? Using secrecy is a means. He didn't think, oh, Allah's going to help me anyway. Let me just go out in the public and let me just go for it. No, he's using the means. He's using a strategy. And we use the means. So this is a balance. We use the means, we use strategies, but we don't allow the means and the strategies to overtake so much so that we put our reliance in the strategy. Our reliance and trust is in Allah, but we use the strategies. So Ibn Ishaq rahmatullahi mentions for three years, the Prophet sallallahu continued the private call. Now Sayyidina Abu Ubaidah radiallahu anhu mentions from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu ta'ala anhu that this secret call carried on until Allah revealed the verses of the Quran. Until this verse was revealed, the Prophet continue calling people privately. When this verse was revealed, Ibn Kathir mentions, from then onwards, the Prophet and the Sahaba, they started preaching Islam openly. There's a narration in Tabaqat ibn Sa'ad, Imam Zuhri mentions in the initial days, Rasulullah uh, he continued calling and preaching people secretly. So he's going to the people, calling them secretly, privately. 
and there were some youth who began accepting the message of the Prophet and the numbers started to increase. At this stage, even though the Quraysh knew what he was doing, they didn't oppose him. They knew. They had an idea that something's happening here. But they did not, you don't find the Quraysh opposing the Prophet so much so that many a times when he would pass the gatherings of the Quraysh, they, the Quraysh would be sitting amongst each other and they would make a comment pointing to him. And he says, do you know that, that youngster from the family of Abdul Muttalib, he receives heavenly inspirations. They would actually say this in their circles. That's the guy who receives heavenly inspiration. So they were quite inspired by him. And they were okay with it. They didn't make any issue out of it. There was no opposition. He was doing his secret thing. And the Quraysh kind of knew. But they didn't oppose him. And this continued. Until Rasulullah began cursing the idols. And that was it. That's when the opposition started. That's when the opposition started. Again, a lot of lessons to learn from here. Okay. You, you say nice things, it's fine. As soon as you start... Pointing things out, okay, that's when people start, start turning against you. And this is what happened. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, people respected him. People loved him. They called him As-Sadiq al-Ameen. Even the ones who became arch enemies, up until a certain stage, they were fine with him, right? As soon as he said anything about the idols, or he said, your forefathers were misguided. They weren't on the truth. They were lost. What they were doing, they were deviated. That wasn't right. They couldn't take that. Even though they knew, right, that this person is perfect in every manner, but they couldn't take that. And from that moment, they turned against him. They developed a grudge against him and they tried to harm him in every single way possible. Why? Because he spoke about their idols. Because he spoke about their forefathers and he told them that they're misguided so this is this is the system in the world you say nice things that's why some some scholars are like everybody likes them okay and the ones who actually highlight certain things you normally notice that they don't have a good reputation not because they're necessarily bad it's just no one likes being told anything that's the truth no one really likes being told so if somebody's like pointing things out forget him he's always going on about these things so this is until until he didn't point anything out he was fine now let's go on to our topic of today talking about the early Muslims so what happens now he sallallahu alayhi wasallam begins his mission because he's been given this mission he has to spread this now to everyone but he's told in the beginning keep it quiet keep it calm keep it secret so to be the first in carrying out good deeds or in anything good, in any good work, to be the first, to be the pioneers, to be, you know, the forerunners, right? In, in Salah, for example, those people in the front saf, the Prophet ﷺ praised them. He made dua for them three times. That Allah have mercy on the people in the front row. Have mercy on the people in the front row. Have mercy on the people in the front row. And I've messed the rest of the people as well, one time. But the front, people at the front, okay? So anything where you be the first, the beginners, those people who set the foundation and lay the, the foundations, they are very, very virtuous people. 
and they hold a very very special rank in our deen so in islam the people who accepted the message first their rank is very very high and we need to know them we need to recognize them we need to understand who they are you know when it comes to other things like you know we, we kind of we know who the pioneers are oh these guys are the legends okay these these guys are you know, these are the people who set the foundations for this particular business. We kind of relate to that. Okay, these were the founding fathers of so-and-so organization. The founding fathers. Okay, we still remember them. We kind of recognize them. We say, oh, these people, you know, they were the ones who put in all of the effort. And we give them that recognition. But why is it when it comes to Islam or pristine religion and deen, okay, we're not very familiar with the founding, those people who, who were the first people, who were the real legends. Uh, so this is inshallah a discussion on who were the first people to accept. Now, question arises here, who was the first, absolute first person to accept Islam? Absolute first person. So we've got Khadija, we've got Abu Bakr as-Siddiq. Any other opinions or suggestions, should I say? So some scholars say it was Khadija. The first person to accept Islam was Khadija. Some say it was Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. Some have even mentioned the name of Sayyiduna Ali radiallahu anhu as being the first. Based on the hadith of Sahih al-Bukhari, and the narrations we find in Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Hisham. Remember, I told you about these two scholars are the main people who've compiled the seerah. It's quite clear that the first to accept Islam was none other than who? Khadija radiallahu anha, without a doubt. Okay, when you put everything together, remember it's a woman, right? Think about it. It was a woman who accepted Islam first. How great must this woman be? Right? Sayyida Khadija radiallahu anha, the first to accept Islam. Now, in Dalail al-Nubuwa, it mentions that the reason why there is ikhtilaf and a difference of opinion, that after Khadija, was it Abu Bakr or was it Ali? Right? Why is there a difference of opinion? Because Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was very close. And we're going to speak about him soon. However, Ali radiallahu anhu actually lived in the house of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam actually gave him his upbringing. So he was very close to him. But despite that, so then this, shouldn't, this discussion shouldn't even be there. It's automatic. You think, well, if he's in the house, if Khadija is first, then if he's in the house as a child, he'd be second. But still there's a discussion. And most of the scholars, some of you probably have never even heard this before, that Ali radiallahu would have been second. You knew he was probably third or fourth. But there is this discussion. And the reason why the discussion is there is because Ali radiallahu anhu, although very close to the Prophet because he was so young, anybody know how old he was at this time? Younger than 13, older than 7, older than 9, 10. Very important to know the ages, to understand what's going on. You have to understand the age of these individuals, how old they were. When the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam been given prophet, he's 40. Okay, we know that. Ali radiallahu is only a 10-year-old child. So 
being so young, you're kind of not independent in major decisions. Who would he need to ask? His father. Who's his father? Abu Talib. Was Abu Talib allowed to know what's going on at this stage? No. So this is one of the reasons why Ali radiyallahu there's a discussion now that is it Abu Bakr or is it Ali? We would have thought it would have been Ali, but he wasn't. Abu Bakr was second. Ali radiyallahu anhu wanted to, but he had to take permission. So we're going to go into that in a moment, inshallah. So Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi, Ishaq ibn Rahway, ibn Salah, Imam al-Nawawi, all of these scholars agree on a certain order. And you might have heard this before. From the free men, okay, from the men, it was Abu Bakr who accepted Islam first. From the women, it was Khadija radiallahu anha who accepted Islam first. From the children, it was Ali radiallahu who accepted Islam first. From the freed slaves, meaning people who were slaves before, but they've been set free. It was Zayd bin Haritha who accepted Islam first. And from the slaves, it was Bilal radiallahu who accepted Islam first. So this is uh, an order which has been mentioned by many of the scholars. So let's speak about some of these individuals to get to know them better, because we need to understand what's happening now. Without understanding the background of these individuals, it wouldn't be possible for us to understand how Islam is progressing now. This is the early days of Islam and the first Muslims. What did it look like? Who were they? Why them and not other people? So let's understand. So first we have who accepted Islam first? Sayyida Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha. So Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha was not only the first woman to accept Islam, but the first person. Just think about it. So and she was the first person to hear the entire incident of the revelation that took place in Hira. Nobody else heard it the way she heard it because she heard it, it was raw. Like it just happened and she was the first person to actually hear and see exactly as it happened. Also, she's the first person to hear the Quran. Nobody heard Quran. She's the first person to hear the Quran. First person to learn wudu. First person to learn salah. Khadija radiallahu anha played a significant role uh, as a personal advisor to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, her confidant as well. Everything would happen. He would, she, he would come and tell her. So he knew everything that was happening. And then she is the one who stood by his side, gave him all the moral support he needed. When the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was denied by the people, she would be by his side when people assaulted him. She would be by his side when the people spoke ill of him. She would console him. So Khadija radiallahu anha offered her moral support whenever Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam needed and always lightened his burden. So this woman holds a very, very significant position in our religion in Islam. Khadija radiallahu anha. So that's the first person to accept Islam. Let's move on. Who else accepted Islam? Who else? Was there anyone else in the house? Who else was in the house? So Waraqa bin Nawfal, we spoke about. Some scholars say he accepted and he's a Muslim. Others say he wasn't. Okay, so but then he passed away. He passed away, so he's no longer there. Um, who else is there? Daughters. This is, this is one area where people kind of forget. What about his daughters? 
the daughters of the Prophet ﷺ, first of all Zainab, Ruqayya, Umm Kulthum, and then later on comes Fatima radiallahu anha. All of them accepted Islam, alhamdulillah. All of them accepted Islam as soon as they heard about, uh, immediately as soon as they heard about Islam, they accepted without any hesitation. And these blessed girls had a chance to actually see and witness everything that was happening firsthand in the household of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. They were part of the journey. They were part of the journey of Islam. They'd already witnessed the truthfulness, the honesty, the compassion of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. They knew what an amazing father he was, what an amazing man he was. They could see that. But not only that, they also saw how their mother supported her father, how she stood by his side, how she, without any hesitation, accepted the message. So they already were convinced that our dad is the best, right? But then their mom was amazing and they saw that moms accepted it totally, wholeheartedly. And if you have such amazing parents as your role models, right? Why would the daughter stay behind? So this, they were already seeing this in their own house where their dad said that I'm a prophet, right? And the moms fully agreed and supported. And they went with it straight away. And um, so they all accepted Islam as well. Then we come on to Sayyiduna Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu. His name was Abdullah. So his actual name is Abdullah. His name is not Abu Bakr. We know him as Abu Bakr. That's why his name. His name is Abdullah. He's known as his kunya. We call it kunya. Kunya is Abu Bakr. And his title is Siddiq. And he also has another title as well. Anybody know his other title? Siddiq, everybody knows. Abu Bakr as Siddiq. Everybody knows. Anybody know his other title? His other title was Atiq. Atiq. Father's name is Uthman. Father's, Abu Bakr's father's name is Uthman. His father's kunya is Abu Qahafa. In the hadith we hear Abu Qahafa. That's the father of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. His mother's name is Salma. And her kunya was Umm Al-Khair, the mother, mother of goodness. That's how she was known amongst the people. Now, some say that the name of Abu Bakr Originally was Abdul Kaaba, the servant of the Kaaba, Abdul Kaaba. Some have said that Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam changed his name to Abdullah, and others say no. His own family members said, "Change your name from Abdul Kaaba to Abdullah." So his actual name is what? Abdullah. He's known as Abu Bakr, and his titles are Siddiq and Atiq. Now, why is he known as Atiq? Three opinions. Number one, the first, the scholars have said that he is known as Atiq. Why? Number one, due to his handsomeness and beauty. He was very beautiful. And because of this, they call him Atiq. I old is gold. Number two, due to him having a very noble lineage, his lineage, his nasab was very pure, was very good, was very noble, best of the people in there. This is why they would call him Atiq. However, there is a hadith of Tirmidhi and the scholars have said and preferred this particular opinion. On one occasion, the Prophet ﷺ addressed him by saying, 
انت عتیق اللہ من النار انت عتیق اللہ من النار you are the freed person of Allah from the hellfire and this is why many scholars say that this is why he was known as عتیق because the prophet صلی اللہ علیہ وسلم addressed him that you are the freed person from the hellfire Allah's freed person from the hellfire now his ancestry from his father would meet the ancestry of the Prophet Sallallahu on the seventh parent. So if you go up seven, okay, to Murrah bin Kaab bin Ghalib, okay, this is where him and the Prophet Sallallahu would be related. Okay, the seventh forefather. How old was he? So he was two years younger than the Prophet Sallallahu So how old is he at this moment in time? 38. Well done. It's important to know this. This information is very important to know. To this is what the seerah is all about. The seerah, it gives context. Like we've got Islam, we've got Hadith, we've got all of these sunnahs that we know. But we, we kind of try and understand it in today's context, which is not very healthy. Because they didn't live in today's times. And this is why people have objections. Alhamdulillah, over the weekend, I got a chance to attend um, a full day course which was delivered by one of our, our teacher, Sheikh Abdul Rahim in Bolton. And he was on the seerah. He actually went through a seerah book from beginning to end. And Alhamdulillah, I got a chance to attend there. And um, started at 10 o'clock in the morning till about five o'clock in the evening, uh, throughout the whole day. Um, well attended, mashallah, there's about 150 ladies and there's about 100 men uh, that attended from all different places. And um, I'm just going to give you one, one thing that I learned from there. You know, the topic of the Prophet ﷺ marrying Aisha anha, is one that gets discussed a lot. And those who criticize Islam and even some within the Muslims as well, they make this into a hot topic thing. Oh, why did he marry somebody so young and, and this and that? And was she really that young? Did that really happen? Uh, and all of that. Now, something very interesting our teacher mentioned at that time is that this is, this is you need to know the seerah to understand these objections because we try and understand things they did according to today. Like today that wouldn't happen. We wouldn't accept it for somebody to get married, nikah to be done to somebody at a young age. Uh, and, and, and then the rukhsati is done when the, when, when, when the child is nine or 10 years old. We think that's a bit strange. But in those days, so what's very interesting, uh, which I learned over the weekend, is when Abu Bakr who received the proposal from the lady who was in between the Prophet this lady came and asked for Aisha. And Abu Bakr who said, that, hang on, I can't say yes. Now why would you think he wouldn't want to say yes to such an amazing proposal? That's his like, best friend. He's a Rasul of Allah. He's such a great honor. Why didn't he just say yes? Do you know why he didn't just say yes? Anybody know why he didn't just say yes? Because there's already a proposal from somebody else. There was already a proposal from somebody else. So in honoring that, obviously he didn't want that one to go ahead because he had given his word. He went and asked and he said, what, what are you guys thinking? And I said, oh, we're not really interested. Oh, Jazakallah, that's what I wanted to hear anyway. And so that kind of tells you that, hang on, that was quite normal. If the Prophet didn't marry somebody else was going to marry her, 
there was no issue. They didn't think of it as something bad. Girls matured much more earlier. She'd already experienced her cycle. So she's mature. She's a woman now. Um, so understanding the seerah puts an end to all of these objections as well. And you understand the context of things. Otherwise, we're just taking a text from here, text from there, text from there. And we're kind of trying to understand the intune. And these are why a lot of questions arise. And it's not wrong to ask to learn. But sometimes our approach is very critical. And that's where it becomes problematic. Anyhow, so let's continue. So this is Sayyiduna Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu. He's two years younger than the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I'll give you another example of why um, context is important. Context. And this is what the seerah does. It gives you context to your religion. Like most Muslims are not familiar with the seerah. So that which means that most of us, we don't have context to our Islam. What does that mean? That means we can't, we're not confident with our religion. We, we're not fully convinced, we're not fully there. Because we're supposed to be believing this is the best and the only way, right? This is the perfect way. Whatever we find, whatever re hadith we read, without any questions, we accept it. But because the context isn't there, a lot of times we kind of go along with it, alhamdulillah. But those questions are there. If somebody was to come and ask us, we wouldn't really know what to say. Besides saying, no, I just believe in it, that's it. But inside you at one point, you're going to think, well, hang on, like, why, could, why is this like this? So understanding the seerah gives you a lot of context. Um, it's the month of Rabiul Awal. We're speaking about the Prophet ﷺ. Very recently, we've spoken about um, poetry. And we spoke about in one of the Jummahs, we spoke about the Prophet ﷺ had a poet. Um, and a special member was made for this poet who would stand on this pulpit. So if you went into Masjid Nabawi, you would see the Prophet ﷺ member, and then next to it, you would see another member. And on this member, who would stand? Who was the poet? Hassan ibn Thabit. The Prophet ﷺ had three poets. Okay? Ka'ab bin Malik, Abdullah bin Rawaha, and Hassan ibn Thabit. Three poets of the Prophet ﷺ. Hassan ibn Thabit. Now, what, what I want to mention is this. When you think about these people, right, poets, uh, if you try to apply it to today's time, you think of people who sing nasheeds, right? When you think of nasheeds, right, nowadays, in today's context, like, who do you think of? Who, who, who comes to your mind? Okay, you think of these people with like really like kind of very thin kind of voices, Right? Almost as, as if they're screeching, right? I, I, this is what comes to my mind when I think of it. And you, you think, like, you know, young, young, really young, young little lads, okay, with this screechy voice and singing this thing. And a lot of times it, it's not pleasant as well. Some people like it, but it's not like, oh, it's a bit cringy at times as well. You think, really, I, you know, I, 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 that's not what I want to be listening to. Some people like it, but for most of the times you think, you know, okay, that's fine. But if we understood the context, when the Prophet entered, uh, when he came to Medina, okay, Hassan ibn Thabit, do you know how old he was? 60. He was 60 years old, right? He wasn't some young little kid singing the sheets, right? This is the greatest poet of the history of mankind, not just Islam. 
the greatest poet, right? A shair, he's known as a shair of Rasul, the greatest poet, right? He was 60 years old. He lived 60 years in Jahiliyyah, he lived another 60 years in Islam. He passed away at the age of 120, right? He was no ordinary poet. He was expert in his field of poetry and singing couplets. He was such an expert, like nobody could match him. And his speciality wasn't just singing poetry in praise. He could do the opposite as well. So he'd diss you. He was like a diss artist. Like he'd stand up and he'd be able to use such words and he'd just put you down. And he'd comment on every part of you and your family and your background. He was an expert and they used him in war. In Medina, when you come to Medina, there were two tribes and they were loggerheads. Who were they? Aus and Khazraj. Two big tribes in Medina, Aus and Khazraj. Hassan ibn Thabit was from Khazraj. So whenever they would have battles and fights, right? Poetry was actually used as a weapon. That was actually a weapon. You know, today's social media, you, you, social media words makes, makes a big difference. Okay, people are using comics and all sorts of things nowadays. So this was a huge weapon. So when they go into battles, a lot of times it was about who could diss the opposite army or the leaders the best. And honestly, that would, in, in one narration, it mentioned that his words were more powerful on them than arrows showering down upon them. It would hurt them much more. You, this is much more painful for them. So you've got Hassan ibn Thabit on the type on the people of Khazraj, and he would basically start his thing, right? And they had no chance. He became so popular, not just in Medina. He was a global poet. Global poet. At that time, global poet. What does that mean? Dynasties, rulers, emperors from all over the world would invite him. If you went to Persia, to the emperor, and enter the, the, the temple or his whatever kingdom it is, do you know who you'd see there at the front? You'd see Hassan ibn Thabit. If you went to Rome, although these were attacking each other, if you went to Rome, right, and to, to the emperor there, you would see Hassan ibn Thabit, right? So he'd work with them, he'd work with them as well. Okay, having a go at each other. But they, he was so good at what he did, so good at what he did, he had global recognition. How old is he? He's an old man. He's 60 years old when the Prophet comes. He's not even accepted Islam yet. 60 years old. So he wasn't some young kid with a screechy voice. Okay, I just remember, I don't know if you guys remember, uh, Marhum Shaheed, he, become, he passed away. Qari Hanif Shahid Rampuri, Rahmatullahi. Anybody remember him? Yeah? No? Qari Hanif Shahid Rampuri, Rahmatullahi, from Pakistan. Um, we got to know him quite well. Um, he got, he got Shaheed. Um, one of the times he came to the UK, when he went back to Pakistan, he got killed. Um, it's not been that long as well. When he came to the UK and he was going around different masjids, I'm sure he's been here as well. Um, we accompanied him many, many different. That's when I thought, this is a shahid. This is a voice, he had a deep voice. And he was praising Allah, praising the Prophet Every single person in the whole masjid, masjid would be full. Everyone took part. And, every, and you could feel your iman increasing. You could feel yourself increasing in the love for the Prophet ﷺ. Young, old, men, women, everybody would take part in every... And that's when you understand how there were people like this, elderly people, 
not young little children. I'm not discouraging young children to go into this. But I'm just giving it some context. That when you hear about, there was a poet in the masjid, okay? It wasn't someone doing some screechy um, song at, 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 at the front and using these instruments. This was Hassan ibn Thabit, radiallahu anhu. And so he's being used by, you know, the Persian Empire, the, the Roman Empire, and all of these leaders of the world. And when he came to Medina Munawwara, you know, there was, um, the people told him that, look, we're going to pay you. We're going to give you loads of money, right? And he could have made a fortune out of this. If he wanted to, he could have made a fortune out of this. People came to him and said, look, there's a man who's coming, right? And we want you to cuss him. We want you to diss him. We want you to prepare your poetry and we're going to pay you for it. So they prepared him. And he says, when he comes, right, we want you to stop attacking him. And then who walked in? This is his first encounter. He sees Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he, when, when the people said to him, look, we, we think you might not do it. He goes, me, not do it. Nothing phases me. I've been to the courts of the kings and the emperors. And I can cuss anybody on their face. It doesn't, this, is, this is who I am. Allah's gifted me, right? I've been gifted, right, with this. He was put to the task. People paid him and said, we'll pay you X amount just to help, just to diss this particular individual. When he saw the Prophet wasallam, this is where now, now this context, this gives you context. He sees the Prophet wasallam. What happened? That's when he says, وَأَحْسَنُ مِنْكَ لَمْ تَرَقَدْتُ عَيْنِي وَأَجْمَلَكْ مِنْكَ لَمْ تَلِدِ النِّسَاءِ خُلِقْتَ مُبَرَّأً مِنْ كُلِّ عَيْبٍ كَأَنَّكَ قَدْ خُلِقْتَ كَمَا تَشَاءَ the famous poetry of Hassan ibn Thabit that you hear, this is, what, this is the time. He was meant to be dissing the Prophet He just saw the Prophet and said, I don't have anything to say. And he, instead, what did he say? More beautiful than you, my eye has never seen. More handsome than you, no woman has ever given birth to. You've been created totally free from any faults and blemishes. As if you've been created exactly as you wanted. It's as if Allah asked you, Muhammad, what kind of eyes would you like? What kind of nose would you like? What kind of mouth would you like? What kind of face would you like? And accordingly, it's, it's as if Allah's put you in this way. And he accepted Islam. And this is the beginning of, and he's 60 years old, remember. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam had this pulpit built for him. And he made dua, Allahumma ayyidhu biruhi al-Qudus. Now, oh Allah, whenever Hassan speaks, oh Allah, please send Jibreel. And Jibreel needs to support and help him. On one occasion, they were in a battle. And Hassan ibn Thabit is probably giving it to the uh, disbelievers. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam told him, stand up and, and, and give him a mouthful. And he stands up and he, and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam afterwards tells him that, you know, whilst you were dissing them, Right, and you were saying your poetry against them. I saw Jibreel was with you the whole way, and he was supporting you and defending you, and he was also taking part as well. So this, why do I mention this to give? Con Can you see? It changes the whole. Like when you hear normally, you just think, okay, there was a poet in the masjid, and you know we think of today's poetry. No, this was Hassan ibn Thabit radiallahu anhu. He was so gifted. On one occasion, I remember there was an incident where um, some, you know, the, the, the opposition and the army needed to be again dissed, right? And Ali radiallahu said, 
Ya Rasulullah, let me do it. And the Prophet said, Tera kam nahi hai. You, you sit down. This is not your job to do. There's only one person who can do this. And who was it? He said, Hassan ibn Thabit, you stand up and you deliver. There was one occasion, the hadith mentions a very interesting incident where uh, Abu Sufyan was in the opposition. He hadn't accepted Islam yet. And the time came to attack them with words. So the Prophet ﷺ told Abu, uh, Hassan ibn Thabit that, you know, you need to do your thing. However, Abu Sufyan is there. Abu Sufyan, now what he would do when he would start, he would attack like, he'd, he was an expert. So he'd proper like go into your family. He'd know how to like have a go at you exactly where it would hurt you. So the Prophet ﷺ said, hang on, don't start now because Abu Sufyan and me, we're linked. Right? We're kind of from the same family. If you start attacking him, you're going to end up like attacking me as well. So do one thing. He called Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr, I'm going to speak about it now. Abu Bakr was an expert genealogist, meaning he knew all the family trees, the lineage, expert, like he knew inside out. So he said, sit with him and try and work out my family, Abu Sufyan's family, try and work out a way. So Hassan ibn Thabit says, Ya Rasulullah, don't worry about it. I will protect you from my poetry. I will do it in such a way and slip you out of it just like an example, he, just like you pull out a hair from flower. You know, if you've got flower and a hair falls in, you know how carefully you just, you just pick it up like this, like that. Because this is how I'm going to take you out. I'm going to mention it in such a way that I'll, I'll keep you out of it. I'll keep you out of it like this. It's so subtle. And then Hassan ibn Thabit goes. And the words are there. The hadith mentions actually in Sahih Muslim. It's beautiful. The way he... he and, and the people are shocked. And they thought, there's no way Hassan ibn Thabit... They, 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 were, they knew. Hassan ibn Thabit cannot do this without consulting Abu Bakr. Because there's no one who could have done this without attacking the Prophet as well. Because they're so closely related. But the way he's done it, keeping the Prophet out of the picture altogether, he must have consulted with none other than Abu Bakr because you're an expert in genealogy. So that was just to give you an idea of um, context. Uh, it's in, we, we've started on Hassan ibn Thabit, so um, I'm just sharing a few. So that on one side, you can see he's an expert. But then on, on the flip side of things, um, one thing he couldn't do, so he was really, so he'd go into the battlefield, he'd be used as, so his poetry was lethal. But then on the flip side, he couldn't fight. He couldn't lift a sword. He never ever fought in battle. He, he just had too much anxiety. The books of Hadith mention this. So much so that in the battle of the trenches, some of the women, uh, Safiya radiallahu anha, the auntie of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa they were like in a protected uh, shelter and the children were some children were there as well. So Hassan bin Thabit was inside there. Okay, and what happened was uh, Some of the Yahud they started to come and attack They found out where the women and children were so they wanted to come and attack. So one of them came in So Safiya said Hassan go attack And he, he said, you know, this is not for me. I, I'm not into this kind of thing We, we need to attack you. They're coming for us and uh, she I can't remember what it was now. She took some, no, she took a pole. She found the pole. Okay. 
a peg. Yeah, the tent peg, yes. She took a tent peg and, and, and bashed it on the hand, on the head of this uh, person who came in. And then he fell to the ground. So then Sophia says, look, now, um, look, I'm not asking you to attack him. Just take off all his weapons, take off his clothes, right? And she goes, I can't do it. That's not me, right? And so can you see that and there were different types of people and the Prophet also wasn't judgmental towards him and saying, oh, why? That's just how he was. He just had maybe a lot of anxiety when it came to this kind of thing. She says, look, I'm a woman, right? I would have done it myself, but because I'm a woman, I don't want to like take his things off. So that's why I'm asking you to do it. So then they eventually they took his stuff off and then they got his body and threw it out. And then the people outside thought that there's a huge army inside and they ran away. Um, so this is Hassan ibn Thabit radiallahu anhu. On the other side, many lessons to learn from him. Um, sadly, he got involved in a slip up as well. So normally when we hear again context, you hear the Sahaba, we hear about how great, how magnificent, how amazing, how awesome they were and they were. They were absolutely amazing. But regarding Hassan ibn Thabit, his whole life he defended the Prophet When he came to the story of Aisha radiallahu anha, when she was slandered, Hassan ibn Thabit actually took part in the slander. He didn't make the slander up, that was done by the Munafiqeen. But when he heard it, what did he do? He passed it on. He passed on the rumor. Now, so sometimes your greatest advantages can become your disadvantages as well. Like if you speak too much, right? So he was a, he was a poet, he, would, he was a speaker. So as he was a speaker, he would speak a lot. So sometimes you end up saying things that you're not supposed to and they get you into trouble. So as great as he was, his whole life he defended the Prophet ﷺ. When he heard the rumor regarding, the slander regarding Aisha radiallahu anha, there were three Sahaba, Hassan ibn Thabit, Hamna bin Tujahash, and Mistah. These three individuals, um, they fell into this um, spreading of the rumor and they also passed it on as well. And they were laughed. They were laughed as well, 80 lashes for the slander because they took part in it without verifying the information. Later on, people used to say bad things about Hassan ibn Thabit. That you took part in the slander. Do you know who defended him? Who defended him? Hmm? No? Who defended him? None other than Aisha radiallahu anha herself. She was the one who was slandered. Right? He spread the rumor against her. But despite that, she would say, never say anything bad about Hassan ibn Thabit. Why? His whole life he defended the Prophet. See, he was recognized. He was recognized for defending the Prophet and not for the rumor that he fell into. So this is this is these great Sahaba. We learn from these incidents how people stand up again after falling down. They are Times happen, things, people slip up, people make mistakes. And these things, this was, a, this was a serious mistake that was made. But how do you stand up from there? How do you move on from there? And um, then he would, he prepared poetry, praising Aisha radiallahu anha. Uh, and and, and speaking, you know, speaking very highly of her. And she would go around defending him, saying don't say anything bad about him. Because, um, you know, he is the one who defended the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam his entire life. So we were speaking about Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhum. Now the name uh, Siddiq, we already know. How, why is he called Siddiq? The story of 
even before Mi'raj. Mi'raj is the journey from Masjid Al-Aqsa to the heavens. But before that happened, Isra. Isra is the journey from Masjid Al-Haram till Masjid Al-Aqsa. That's Isra. The second part is Mi'raj. When the Prophet ﷺ came and he told the, the, the people of Makkah, he didn't even tell them about the Mi'raj. That was still to come. He just told them that in uh, last night I went from Masjid Al-Haram to Masjid Al-Aqsa. Imagine he told them the rest of the story. He only told them this much. He was still about to tell them the rest of it. And that they started to doubt. They said, no way, it's not possible. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu said, Ya Rasulullah, Fasifli Bayt Al-Maqdis, Fa'inni Qad Atayto. O Messenger of Allah, describe Bayt Al-Maqdis, meaning Masjid Al-Aqsa. I've been there. He used to go for trade journey. He says, I've been there before. Describe it to me. I want you to describe it to me. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam started describing Masjid Al-Aqsa to Abu Bakr. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, every time the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam gave a description, the Prophet uh, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu would say, Sadaqta, ashhadu annaka Rasulullah. You spoke the truth, I bear witness you are the Messenger of Allah. So then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said another detail. He would say, Sadaqta, ashhadu annaka Rasulullah. You spoke the truth, I bear witness you are the Messenger of Allah. That is the day when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Wa anta ya Abu Bakr as-Siddiq. From today onwards, Abu Bakr, you're going to be a Siddiq. So he got his title where? Because of the Barakah of Masjid Al-Aqsa. Abu Bakr radiallahu we call him Abu Bakr as-Siddiq. Because he testified the details of Masjid Al-Aqsa with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now, in Al-Bidaya wa Nihaya, there's an interesting incident. Urwa bin Abdullah says, I asked a question to Abu Ja'far Muhammad bin Ali. Anybody know who Abu Ja'far Muhammad bin Ali is? No. He comes in the lineage later on. Huh? Which Ali? No, no, no. After him. After him. After him. You know our friends who believe in all these different Imams? Okay. He's one of the Imams. Abu Ja'far Muhammad ibn Ali, Imam Baqir. Imam Baqir, the, Ra the Rawafid, they consider him to be one of their great Imams. Okay, they have, you know, they believe in the, the Ithna Sharia, believe in these 12 Imams. So Imam Baqir is considered as one of the greatest Imams amongst them. So this is a very interesting incident. So this Urwa bin Abdullah says, I went to Imam Baqir and I asked him a question, a fiqh question. I said, is it permissible to uh, embellish your sword? If you've got a sword, are you allowed to like put some kind of jewelry on it and, you know, adorn it, put embellishments on it? So Imam Bakr gave a response and said, there's no problem at all. Of course it's permissible. Because Abu Bakr as-Siddiq would also do this as well. So Urwa bin Abdullah said, did you just call him Siddiq? Did you just call him Siddiq? So Imam Bakr responded to this by saying, he suddenly sat up. And he faced the Qibla. And he said, Naam as Siddiq, Naam as Siddiq. Famallam yakul as Siddiq, Fala saddaqallahu lahu kaulan fi dunya wala fi lahira. He said, Of course he is as Siddiq. Of course he is as Siddiq. Anybody who doesn't refer to Abu Bakr as Siddiq, may Allah not make his words truthful in dunya and in akhirah. This is a curse and a bad dua upon them from their greatest Imam. And I believe this is one of the reasons why. They are filled with so much fabrications and so much nonsense.
so much just lies and fabrications. If you ever heard any of their talks and discussions, it's, 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 it's full of just nonsense, full of fabrications, stories you have never heard of. They're just really weird and strange and it's just totally made up. Total. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like that. So he said that anybody who doesn't refer to him as a Siddiq, may Allah not make his words truthful in the dunya and also the akhirah. Now, Abu Bakr as Siddiq had a very close and a deep relationship with the Prophet. Now, this is context. This is another. When we say context, you can understand. Hadith of Bukhari, Aisha says, There wasn't a single day, there wasn't a single day in which the Prophet would not come to our house twice, morning and evening, every day. Think about that. Think how close they were. Not a single day the Prophet would not come to our house morning and evening. Not a single day passed. Just imagine how close they were. Right? These are important things to understand. The Prophet was very social. He tells you. He just sit at home. I'm just going to mind my own business. Don't go to anybody's house. Okay, just, just keep to yourself. This, this is, and this is why a lot of people, they misunderstand Islam. They have a very negative view on Islam because we put it, we put it across in a very... This is not how the Prophet ﷺ was. The image we're giving to people is of a very different Islam. And without the seerah, we won't understand. We have to understand what happened, what he did. So he, this is... He had friends, he had friendship. And this is how he... This is, there wasn't a single day where he wouldn't come to our house morning and evening. Do you know in the hadith of Hijrah, the hadith of migration, when the Prophet migrated, we know that he took Abu Bakr with him. In that hadith again, possibly in Sahih al-Bukhari, the words of Aisha are very interesting. She says, now it, it tells you how often the Prophet would visit them. She says, he came to our house at a time on, in which he normally didn't come. So she was really shocked. So he came, but it wasn't, it wasn't the normal time. So he'd come morning or evening. This time he came at a different time. He came much later. So she was like thinking, hmm, what's happened? Because he had such a good routine that every single day he was coming morning and evening on that occasion. And then he, uh, he, he told Abu Bakr anhu that, um, you know, this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking of migrating. Abu Bakr said, Sahba Ya Rasulullah. Do you need someone with you? Anyone to travel with you? And the Prophet said, yes, you can come with me. Uh, Abu Bakr said, you know, I've got two animals. You can have one, I'll have one. Aisha radiallahu says, that is the first time in my life I ever saw and I experienced somebody crying out of laughter. Until then, I'd never understood how can a person cry out of being happy? So I saw my dad. When he said, Ya Rasulullah, you're going and migrating during Hijrah. Can I come with you? And when he said, yes, because I saw my dad crying. I know he wasn't sad. He was really happy. Because that's the first time I actually saw somebody crying out of happiness and joy. So regarding Abu Bakr anhu, even prior to Islam, he detested the idols. He never drank alcohol. And he didn't indulge in any of these things. 
which you would refer to as being things of indecency. He himself, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, was extremely sociable. He had very good character and he was a very successful businessman as well. So in trade, in business, he was very good as well. And people loved him. Everybody loved Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu because of his good ethics, his morals. I already spoke about his genealogy. So he was a genealogist, expert genealogist. He knew the lineage and people would gather around him. You know, someone who's popular and nice, people come around them. They want to listen to them. When he would speak, people would listen because he was really sharp and he's excellent. Everybody kind of loved him. And he was very, very similar to the Prophet in many aspects. So the similarities between him and the Prophet were so much. I'm going to give one example that on one occasion, sorry, on two separate occasions, two different individuals praised, one of them praised the Prophet one of them praised Abu Bakr and they used exactly the same words. And what chance is there of that happening? Like two separate individuals, two separate scenarios, and they're both in Sahih al-Bukhari. I'm going to give you an example. When the Prophet received revelation, he came to the house of Khadija. What did she say? She consoled him and she said, These are the words of Khadija, praising and consoling him. You join family relations. You carry the burden of the people. You work for those who can't work. You go and earn and you go and give money to those who can't. You are hospitable to your guests and you always support people that are in need or people who are suffering from natural disasters. These are words, the words of Khadija used to console the Prophet ﷺ when he received the first revelation. That was them. Now, when Abu Bakr was in Makkah and he became sick of the people's persecution and becoming an obstacle in, in, in him practicing the deen, he decided to leave Makkah. When he's leaving Makkah to Mukarramah, there was one of the leaders of Banu Qarra, Ibn Daghina, Ibn, it's pronounced differently as well. He stopped him at Barq al-Thimad. And he said, where are you going? He says, I'm leaving. So why are you leaving? Because it's, it's hard to practice Islam here. People are giving a hard time. He said, Abu Bakr, you're a person who should not be allowed to go and who should not be made to go. I, you're too good. You are too good of a person. You shouldn't be allowed to go and you shouldn't be made to go. I'm going to make sure you stay in Makkah and I'm going to give you my protection. And then he praises him and he says to him, he says to the people around him, if you followed the Arabic, you will see exactly the same words. The words Khadija said to the Prophet ﷺ, he is saying to Abu Bakr exactly the same. They were very, very, very similar. I mean, why wouldn't he be the first Khalifa? Right? There were just so many similarities. They were just so close. He was the only companion who was there in the migration. One day Rasulullah came to Abu Bakr. He said, Verily, I'm the Rasul of Allah. I'm the Nabi of Allah. Allah has sent me with a special message. I call you to the truth to believe in one Allah. By Allah, this is the truth. And Allah is alone. Allah doesn't have any partners. And there is none worthy of worship besides Him. Then the Prophet ﷺ recited some Quran. Immediately, Abu Bakr who accepted Islam. So this was his conversion, you would say. Um, and he entered the fold of Islam. 
Now, as soon as he accepted Islam, he tried really, really hard to convince members of his own family, his relatives, his friends, his associates to accept Islam as well. And as a result, he was actually able to get together a group of like, you'd call them magnificent individuals who accepted Islam through his efforts. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, himself, he goes out. Shall I tell you some of the names? Like who came into Islam through him? Number one, Zubair ibn al-Awam. Who is Zubair ibn al-Awam? One of the Ashra Mubashara, 10 people guaranteed paradise. Uthman ibn Affan. Yeah, the third Khalifa. Talha bin Ubaidillah. Again, one of the Ashra Mubashara. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. Another one of the Ashra Mubashara. Abdul Rahman ibn Awf. One of the Ashra Mubashara. All of these people accepted Islam through who? Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhum. Um, many of the early people who accepted Islam were also slaves, like Bilal radiallahu anhu, and Fuhaira, Abu uh, Fuhaira, Labina, Zinnira, uh, Umm Ubais. We'll speak about them later, inshallah. And Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu released a lot of people from slavery. Um, he couldn't, he was very soft hearted, very compassionate, very kind. You know, all the Sahaba have an exclusive quality. One of his special qualities was compassion mercy and again where, where did he get that from if anybody cared for the ummah after the prophet if there was anybody who cared for the ummah the most it would be abu bakr and you hear it in the khutbah of Jummah every week what do you hear it says the most kind-hearted towards my ummah in my ummah is Abu Bakr. After the Prophet if anyone cared for my ummah the most, who was it? Abu Bakr. And again, this is another reason why he should be the Khalifa. Because the person who's going to be the leader of the ummah has to be someone who cares about the people the most. And the Prophet gave this. He said, there is no one who cares more, has more compassion and kindness. ummati bi ummati Abu Bakr. And then we have وَأَشَدُّهُمْ فِي أَمْرِ اللَّهِ وَعَمَرُ وَأَصْدَقُهُمْ عَيَانُ عُثْمَانُ وَأَقْضَاهُمْ عَلِيَ And he carries on. But the first one, أَرْحَمُ أُمَّتِي بِأُمَّتِي أَبُو بَكَرْ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمْ The Prophet ﷺ said this regarding him. Uh, now, Abu Bakr رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ He never focused on gaining fame, recognition, a position. He was always seeking the pleasure of Allah. He never wanted to be someone important. One day his father, Abu Qahaf, actually said to him, Abu Bakr, you know, you're freeing all these slaves. Why, why are you freeing all these weak slaves? Why don't you free one of the stronger ones? So then he'd be one of your supporters, one of your helpers. He could, the, the, you know, these people can then uh, do your work for you. And he responded to his father by saying that, Oh, my father, I'm only doing it for the sake of Allah. I'm not doing it for any other motive. I'm not doing it because they, they'll become helpers for me. I'm doing it only for the sake of Allah. And this statement was so powerful that Allah sends Jibreel from the heavens. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals verses of the Quran in favor of Abu Bakr. This is Abu Bakr. His actions invited verses of the Quran to be revealed. The person who gives. And he has Allah speaking about his heart now. Okay? And he's just having this discussion with his father. And Allah is going to make us read this until the day of Qiyamah. Now we're going to know how sincere Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala was when he came to giving charity. 
he stayed with the Prophet ﷺ throughout his life. You know when you hear in the hadith of Bukhari, the Prophet ﷺ stood up with him was Abu Bakr and Umar. He sat down with him was Abu Bakr and Umar. He entered the room with him was Abu Bakr and Umar. He left the room with him was Abu Bakr and Umar. He passed away and now with him Ahu, Abu Bakr and Umar. On the day of Qiyamah when he rises, who's going to be with him? Abu Bakr and Umar. These are the greatest people. The greatest people of Allah chose. You know, uh, in the ninth year, a lot of people don't know this. In the ninth year of Hijrah, Hajj became obligatory. But the Prophet ﷺ didn't go for Hajj that year. When did he do Hajj? In the tenth year, before he passed away. He came back and six months later, approximately, he passed away. So the year before, in the ninth year, there was Hajj. Muslims did Hajj. So who, who, who was the Amir of Hajj? Who was the Imam of Hajj? The Prophet ﷺ appointed Abu Bakr anhu. Look, all of these indications, they were there in the lifetime. He appointed him and said, you will be the Imam of Hajj. So Abu Bakr anhu is the person who took the Muslims on their first Hajj. Right? So he's the Imam of Hajj. And the Prophet ﷺ didn't go for Hajj that year. He went the following year. Uh, and the year before he passed away. And we know that he was also appointed and not only did so he, all of these things when the Prophet Sallallahu in his final days when he becomes ill who who becomes the Imam who looks after the Musalla of the Prophet Sallallahu Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu no one else was chosen okay and the Prophet Sallallahu Abu Bakr in Yusalli bin Nas tell Abu Bakr to lead the people Aisha came and said oh, oh my father oh 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 um Oh, my husband, oh, oh, Prophet of Allah, my father, you know, he cries too much in salah. People won't hear him. Choose somebody else. He kept repeating, Muru Abu Bakr in Yusalli bin, tell Abu Bakr, where is Abu Bakr? Tell him he's going to be the Imam. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, whilst he's alive, Abu Bakr radiallahu is leading the salah in Masjid Nawi for a number of days. And until he passed away, and that final day, you know, before you pass away, this happens that before a person passes away, there's a moment where you gain consciousness and you feel better momentarily. This is a natural process. And everyone gets their hopes high. Oh, thinking everything's good now. Oh, he's all right now. The Prophet ﷺ, he went through this illness and he was getting worse and worse and worse. On the last morning, the Monday he passed away, in the morning he gained consciousness and he was quite well. He became so well that Abu Bakr came to visit him and he said, Oh Prophet of Allah, you're looking really good now. Give me permission. I've not seen my wife, um, other wife. She lives on the outskirts of Medina in Awali. Um, I've not been to see her for quite a while. So if you give me permission. I'll... So he was comfortable seeing, Oh, he's, he's okay now. Let me go and visit her. And he goes and visits her. And whilst he's there, in that period, the Prophet passed away. And we find the last Fajr Salah, um, the Prophet ﷺ, he takes the support of two individuals and he removes the curtain. Fajr Salah is going on, Abu Bakr is leading the Salah and the curtain moves. And it's almost as if the Sahaba were in Salah and they, they noticed that the curtain is moving so they all turn to look and they saw that final glance of the Prophet ﷺ. And they, they described that his face was like, some have described it like silver, some have described like the moon, uh, or a piece of the moon, or a piece of the, uh, like a sword, like a, the silver. Anyhow, 
they say that the Prophet ﷺ smiled because this was, he was happy and content that he's leaving his ummah united behind one imam. Who was that imam? Abu Bakr radiallahu. There are so many indications. He sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, everyone's doors and windows that open up into Masjid Nabi, everyone must close them, except for Abu Bakr. He's, he's allowed to keep his window and door open, that opens into Masjid Nabi. All of the other houses, they should close it. Indication after indication after indication that Abu Bakr radiallahu is to be appointed as the Khalifa of the Muslims. We find 12th Rabi al Awwal. Um, the Prophet ﷺ passes away and also uh, people give the pledge to Sayyidina Abu Bakr and he became the, the Khalifa, the first Khalifa of Islam. And then he himself, two years later, so this was in the 11th year after Hijrah, um, two years later in the 13th year after Hijrah, it was the 7th of Jamad al-Ukhra between Maghrib and Isha, he became ill and he passed away at the age of 63. And it was a Monday. So, I mean, how can you match all of these things together? So the Prophet ﷺ passed away at the age of 63 on a Monday. So did Abu Bakr on a Monday at the age of 63. And he will remain the Khalifa for two years, three months and 10 days. And without a doubt, he is the greatest personality of this ummah after Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. There is no doubt in that whatsoever. The greatest person to come to this world after the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in this ummah, we're talking about none other than Sayyiduna Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhum. So we'll stop here inshallah. So we're, we're speaking about the first people to accept Islam. Um, we'll continue with speaking about others like Sayyidina Ali, Zayd ibn Haritha, Uthman ibn Affan to give us an idea of what that inner circle looked like. Those people who first accepted Islam, what was it like? Who were they? What was their background? May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us a tawfiq. Next week, inshallah, we won't have a session. Next Tuesday, we'll continue the week after that, inshallah. Subhanallah wa bihamdik, subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik, nashadu an la ilaha illa wa